Hello, Vedvelters, and welcome back. It's been a while, I know, but we've just had our long-awaited first post-COVID international family and friends holiday, in the snow, no less. So podcasting took a backseat for a week, and family time and sliding down mountains at high speeds with loved ones took precedence. Oh, and negotiating and arguing with kids, and getting kids dressed in 20 layers of clothing and looking for lost gloves, and trying and failing miserably to teach a four-year-old to ski. Picture trying to get a wooden marionette to stand up straight on skis on a cold mountainside, but the marionette has no strings, and it has the ability to feel cold and whine and complain loudly. Kind of like Pinocchio's come half to life, but with no ability to move his limbs. (sighs) What cheered me up, though, was seeing so many other parents going through the same trauma. I feel terrible about the degree of schadenfreude, or however you say it, schadenfreude, that I felt about their plight. But it sure does make you feel a lot better to know that you're not alone. One particular highlight was witnessing an interaction between a mom and a kid of about seven or eight, I guess. Although the layers and layers of puffy cold weather gear makes it hard to say. The protagonist, which, in case you're wondering, is always the mom, said in a tone somewhere between a hiss and a shout and a little bit of crying, What exactly is it that you want from me? What more can I possibly do to make you happy? Now, I appreciate that you might think, poor kid. But what you need to understand is that that poor mom had expectations. She'd imagined a holiday where the family would spend blissful days bonding on the snow while gliding down slopes and laughing over apres ski drinks in intimate cafes. And she'd invested not insignificant amounts of money to do so. Just those aforementioned layers of clothing would probably cover the bill for a fairly big lump removal where you work. I wanted to hug her and say, I get it. I really do. Maybe I should have. But this and so many, 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 many other incidents like this made me wonder, why do we do it? Seriously, isn't it just easier to stay at home and watch a movie or something? Well, probably yes. But I know why we do it. Because just over a decade of traveling to all sorts of challenging environments with kids from the age of like one month old has taught me this. While you're in the thick of those challenging moments, feelings of, what the fuck are we doing? tend to dominate the moment. But look back at the trip a month, six months, five years down the line, and all that remains is the good stuff. The sun drying salty drops of Indian Ocean on your back on a deserted beach while your kid shows you the shells he's found. Seeing the look of exhilaration brought about by pure and simple fun on your wife's face when she reaches the bottom of the ski run for the first time in over five years. Even that moment when your dad stitches up the massive gash on your kid's foot from a broken beer bottle in a swimming pool, which at the time seems like a catastrophe. But unbeknownst to you at the time, this would be one of the last activities that you ever do with your dad. So what does all of this have to do with a veterinary podcast and with our marvelous guest? Well, I'll tell you. It's because, in my opinion, this is what life is like, including your work life. As you'll see from this conversation, those big challenges changing lanes in your career, starting a practice when you have a newborn, that difficult research project, that thing that takes all the emotional energy you can muster, those things that might seem like a very bad idea at the time, those are very often the exact things that create a full career and a life that you can look back on with satisfaction. So who is our guest? Dr. Tanya Stevens is a small animal practice owner and practitioner who still very much enjoys practice. As a practitioner, she is particularly interested in professional ethics and promoting evidence-based medicine. She's also a wildlife researcher with original research on galactosemia and kangaroos. 
Her interests lie in animal welfare, research, evidence-based medicine, professional ethics, wildlife and sustainable agriculture. And she's a regular presenter and published author on these topics. She is the editor of One Welfare in Practice, The Role of the Veterinarian, and is a fellow of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Tanya is past president of the ANZCVS Animal Welfare Chapter, that's the Australia-New Zealand College of Veterinary Surgeons, past president of AWAWE, the Welfare and Ethics Branch of the AVA, an executive member of the AVCB, which is the Conservation Biology Branch of the AVA, chair of the AVA's Animal Welfare Trust, honorary consulting veterinarian for the Children's Medical Research Institute, veterinary member of the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, chair of the New South Wales Kangaroo Management Advisory Panel and member of the Kangaroo Management Task Force, plus the chair of the New South Wales Greyhound Welfare Integrity Commission Animal Welfare Committee. (sighs) I'm exhausted. (laughs) What I love about Tanya's career is that it's not just one thing. It's so easier for us to get stuck in a mindset of, I've chosen this thing, so all other things are off the table. Because once you choose this thing, then these are the things I have to do. But if you remember our episode with Philip McKernan, no, you don't have to. Except in some extreme examples, we are the architects of our own lives. But as you'll hear, Tanya says that architects often create fairly rubbish homes for themselves. And when it comes to our careers, I wonder if this is because of those expectations of, I have to. Tanya's story shows very clearly that you don't have to do anything in a certain way. Clinical practice doesn't have to take up all your time and exclude all other interests, like researching kangaroos. Practice ownership doesn't have to be a ball and chain. Having young kids doesn't have to mean you can't run a business. Research doesn't have to be done just by researchers. In quotes. Jump in with us to hear about how Tanya followed her curiosity to create a career around what worked for her. Of course, we also talk about ethics and the line between thorough and too much. Trust and why Tanya thinks we might be losing it the perils of defensive practice, the concept of gold standard and why aiming for it might not always be the best idea, how you play a key role in animal welfare in your consult room and beyond, and much, much more. Please enjoy Dr. Tanya Stevens. Dr. Tanya Stevens, welcome to the Vet Vault. And thank you very much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Mm. This has been coming for a while, right? We've been chatting about all our topics for ages. Yes, we have. <laughs> and, and we have a lot of potential things to talk about. My biggest challenge in preparing for this is to pick the things that I want to chat about. When in, in summary, and I'm probably going to miss stuff, but you are a practice owner. You're a, a researcher. Is that accurate to call you a researcher? Yep. Yes. Is You're a kangaroo conservationist. Is that the right word for it? Oh, well, cons- yes. I'm interested in kangaroo management. Management? Yeah. You're involved with the racing greyhounds somehow, is that right? Yes. So I chair the Greyhound Welfare Integrity Commission Animal Welfare Committee after the greyhound racing was banned in New South Wales. Mm. They set up a Welfare Integrity Commission and I chair the Animal Welfare Committee that was established at that time to really oversee the greyhound racing industry and to provide advice on animal welfare issues and help write the code and involved in regulations. And um, 
but I also sit on the race review panel. So we look at injuries on the track and just look at the whole big picture of greyhound racing and provide advice and just see how we can really manage it. And has the greyhound found its way into your home and your heart yet? No, look, I don't go to greyhound races. It's, look, it's more of an oversight, code writing, regulatory role, but it's really interesting. And as somebody who knew absolutely nothing about the greyhound industry, it's been quite, um, quite interesting. I'm a firm believer that vets, instead of just sort of talking about animal welfare, actually do something about animal welfare. And I suppose the greyhounds and the kangaroos allows me to actually get involved and do something, get your hands dirty as it were, rather than just sort of mm. sit on the sidelines and say, oh my God, you know, racing's terrible. Pontificate and write nasty comments on Facebook. <laughs> That's right. You know, like we should ban greyhound racing. And look, people are going to use animals. And if people are going to use animals, the whole idea that you then walk away because you don't agree with them using animals, I think that's a really not very useful. It's not useful for the animals particularly. So I think vets really should get involved in areas even if they don't necessarily agree with them, Yeah, where people use animals. Yeah, because if you, by just turning away, you've got no influence on it, I suppose, by getting, so I've, I've got a, 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 an old colleague of mine works on or does some work on one of the live export ships mm, yes. which is that's that's a taboo that's like a no 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 but again she says look i have an influence i don't like it i don't love it but it's happening i may as well be there and have have an influence on it and try and make it better well that's right and i think if vets put themselves into these roles then we do have an influence and people view us in a very positive light so if we want to be the primary source of animal health and welfare, we have to be involved in these in industries, like your friend on, on the ship. If you're not involved, then people don't look up to you. They don't turn to you for advice. And I see that as really part of the work I do, animal ethics committees, kangaroo management, and the greyhounds. And it's interesting. And you meet some really nice people who really care and this perception, for instance, of kangaroo harvesters and being whatever people might think of kangaroo shooters is, you know, mostly simply not true. By getting involved in these, it raises the status of the profession uh, rather than people saying, I don't agree with shooting kangaroos, I don't agree with racing greyhounds, therefore I'm going to say we should stop doing that because people are going to use animals. You see, this is exactly what I was concerned about because we haven't even finished our intro and I already have a hundred mm. questions. <laughs> it's already yeah. an interesting topic. <laughs> That's all uh, right. Come on. <laughs> this getting involved in welfare thing and what you say there about getting involved, a big stumbling block for a lot of people will be time, which brings me back to your introduction because on top of that, you're also a mum. Mm. Yes. You, yep. you raised, you raised four a family. Children and uh, eight grandchildren. Four children. Wow. I want to four. And eight, eight grandchildren. And you're an ethics guru, uh, you're an author. Time, how the hell do you do all of it? <laughs> That's the late nights, <laughs> not early mornings, late nights. No, look, I have a passion, I find the time, but I'm a bit of a pro procrastinator as well. So, who knows? I sometimes look back and I go, Oh, how did I do that? No idea, no idea. <laughs> you just, just do it. 
I'm really fascinated by that procrastination. <laughs> this wasn't on my list of topics to talk about, but I, I, I want to talk about that. I, I, I want to talk about it because I'm a champion procrastinator. Oh, I, yes. it's, it's a big, big challenge for me is I, <laughs> I have all these things I'm passionate about and that I want to do. But then I always have 20 little things I just need to first quickly do before I get started on something. Is, is that something you still struggle with? Do you feel like you've oh, mastered yes. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll I'll come home from work and I'll think, oh, I really must finish that article and, you know, do that bit of stuff to publish a paper or get involved in the book. And I've been asked to edit a new book as well. And I was thinking, yeah, I really ought to put in that application. I really think about it. So I go to bed at night and I think about things and then I'll make some notes the next morning before I go to work. And, and I was going to say, when we're talking about influence, I, I think practice is great. I, I love practice. And I think it, it, people don't acknowledge, or vets especially, and even the public, doesn't acknowledge the significant impact that the average practitioner has on animal welfare. You might think that you're not doing anything for animal welfare, or you might read books or write articles or whatever, and be a bit of a philosopher. But the reality is when you go into practice and you deal with people every day, you influence their behavior. So you influence the way that they deal with their animals. So changing human behavior is the big issue in improving animal welfare. You can't improve animal welfare without changing people's behavior or you know, highlighting <clears throat> their behavior towards animals. That's a great insight because it is something that for a long time I, I struggled with at the start of my career. And I think it's possibly with growing up in South Africa, which has that sort of a third world component to it where you have genuine animal neglect. Mm. And then we have the big wildlife component as well, um, and conservation. So when I went into veterinary science, I had this idea that I was going to do the big picture stuff you know, save the wildlife or have an impact like that, those sort of things you talk about. And then I sort of got sidetracked into the smallest practice thing. And for a long time, I, I did struggle with feelings of, well, does this really matter? And all this time and effort and energy that I'm investing in this, this individual little poodle and spending thousands and thousands of dollars and outside just down the road, there's a thousand dogs that don't even have food. I did often struggle with that, and it's still sometimes, I do still, still get stuck in it sometimes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do, and I went through the same ideas, and, and which is one of the reasons I get <clears throat> involved in other big picture issues. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I think we do have a wider influence in smaller animal practice than we realise. And I think if you look at the fact that something like 78% of vets in Australia are in practice, that's a lot of vets, that's a lot of influence. And whether it's just a local community or your poodle owner and doing your anal glands, you can influence um, people which you think it might be in small ways for them to look at the big picture. And, uh, and I think that happens, to be honest with you. I think you're sort of not aware of it when you're there doing your nail clipping, your anal glands and whatever. You don't understand the influence you might have in generating trust in the profession. So if the poodle owner trusts you and think that vets are wonderful, then they'll trust you if you're making a pronouncement on one health epidemiology. And I think that 
portrayal of vets as a profession to trust just in a small animal practice is probably more important than you realize. And that is a big thing that I'll probably chat about just quickly now is trust in professionals and trust in our profession has fallen. So the latest survey shows that we're well below nurses. We're down to, we were on 78% of public trusting us, we're now on 71%. I think that's a real worry. And I think considering that most vets are in practice, it's how the public views practitioners comes back to very important. So you might think that, you know, your dog spays and whatever are unimportant, but your relationship with your clients and society in that setting influences how they feel about you as a primary source of information on animal health and welfare. So if you look at these surveys and you look at trust in the profession, and so it's falling and we need to do something about that. The public wants accountability and they want transparency. And to me, that comes back to using best evidence, which is one of the reasons I promote evidence-based medicine. We've got to stick to the science because it's not ethical not to do it. You know, flogging useless stuff and, and all that is such a big issue in practice. So we need to, if we want to be accountable and the transparency and for the public to trust us, then we have to be scientific. We have to be beyond reproach in the way we approach things. So why has that, do we know, or why do you think that trust has decreased? There's expectations of the public, their fur babies, the growth of the fur babies. Costs of veterinary services are a big issue. And again, that goes back to evidence-based medicine. And we've shown that affordability is a big issue. I think that's one of the issues. A lot over-servicing, over-diagnosis. We're not really sure of the extent of that. There's a lot of factors. Um, the celebrity vets, heroic treatments. It's quite a complex area, and it's something that the fellows of the Royal College of Veterinary Scientists as Surgeons has been looking at and I sit on their science advisory panel. And this is an area that we've been looking at and had a couple of seminars, this whole area of uh, affordability, over-servicing, over-diagnosis. I think it's a problem, and I think we're not going to be accountable and transparent unless we use good science. So it's interesting, you mentioned the the celebrity vets and the heroic interventions and stuff like that. How does that erode trust? I, I always thought that people... You know, it, to me, it lifts the stand, well, at least the perception of the profession and people go, wow, look how amazing vets are. Is there evidence that it's counterproductive in some sense? I think it comes back to unrealistic expectations as well. The expectations that you're going to be able to do that, but the costs associated with it, and then they can't do it. Okay, so is it p people see it on TV and then they come to their GP vets and you go, you yeah, know, I can't do a titanium knee for your dog. <laughs> Yeah, and, but we could do it down the road, but it's $20,000 and people are like, oh. yeah, that's so, right. so, so there's a mismatch in, in what they're yeah. expecting. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, expectations. And look, I think that's an interesting area, but I, I'm thinking I put in a proposal to do a new book on contemporary veterinary issues, which will deal with all this. It's um, something we've been chatting about for years. Yeah. And then you mentioned selling or pushing useless, flogging useless stuff. 
Oh, yeah, that's a big issue. What sort of useless stuff are we talking? Like, I immediately, I'm defensive. I'm like, no, I don't sell useless stuff. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, like, uh, yeah, give me, give us examples. Well, there's a problem of commission bias where people come in with an animal. It, uh, human behavior is a really important aspect of veterinary practice. And vets, most of the mistakes they make is nothing to do with lack of knowledge. It's to do with biases. And this commission bias comes in big time. And commission bias is the urge to do something. And it's very strong. So somebody comes in and they've got, no, kennel cough. It's raging here at the moment. They've got a dog with kennel cough. We know from the evidence <clears throat> that they're going to get better anyway. They don't need antibiotics. If you get an antibiotics, they get better in the same time. So commission bias is one of the reasons for the overuse of antibiotics in human medicine. And I think we can say that's probably true. So if we're going to look at antimicrobial resistance and reducing the antibiotics, then we have to look at human behavior and this whole concept of it's not just clinical practice. We need to look at the fact that people want to do something. So what do you do? Somebody comes in, the dog's keeping them awake all night because it's got a hacky cough and there's that urge to do something about it. So that's one issue. But then there's lots of ineffective therapies. And if you look at the alternative therapies at the moment, all the useless supplements and stuff like that, it's just overwhelming. It's worth billions of dollars a year. And it's making some of these people very happy, very wealthy, the floggers of these things. So we've got to stop doing that because there's some research that shows that the best way to get trust, maintain trust and to move forward and to make a, have affordable veterinary services, which is really important. And now we've got rising inflation. This is really going to come into the fore. Affordability is going to be a big issue. So, you know, don't do useless stuff. Just do evidence-based medicine. And then we come on to the big issue of the environmental impact of pet ownership, which is huge. And if you look at some of this stuff, like people buying coats for their dogs and fancy collars and if you look at the statistics it's just amazing and all the supplements I, I undertook as a bit of an aside an interesting exercise I wrote to one of the manufacturers of these products and said could you send me the evidence that your tablets do this what they say they're going to do on the label and they sent all this stuff and the research papers were old, they didn't relate, and about 20 of them, I went through them. So I replied and I said, look, none of those papers point to any evidence for the stuff that you're selling at 20 or $30 a bottle, which tells people their dogs are going to live longer and happier lives. And, uh, so, you know, what's, what's the answer? And they said, oh, yes, well, we admit there's no evidence for any of these products. Then they actually admitted it but we're going to do some research, which I thought was hilarious. And I've written to pet food manufacturers as well. And if I'm concerned, I ask questions. And, you know, I mean, why are we using fish oil? There's absolutely no evidence for fish oil. Why are we using good quality deep sea fish in pet foods, for instance? So I think it's, it's a huge area, not just the food which and every practitioner can make decisions on this and of course you know i tell everybody to feed their animals kangaroo which makes sense we've got 46 million really good sources of protein hopping around the country which can be 
humanely and sustainably sourced. But that's another aside. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I think vets have really got to think about why aren't people trusting us as much as they used to? What is causing this erosion of trust? And I don't think there's a simple answer. It's not a simple answer. It's a tricky one because I agree with you. In, I would definitely lean towards if it's not proven to help, then don't use it. I, I remember our first year pharmacology lecturer said the first principle he wants to teach us about pharmacology is don't use it if you don't have to. Uh, uh, because he said most most things will get better despite what you do. So that's right. Carefully before. <laughs> uh, and I think that's always stuck with me. But then on the flip side, People come and they do want something. Mm. They want you to be seen to do something. So if you go, well, I'm going to give you this thing, I know it's not going to do any harm. Like it's sometimes there's that desire to, as you say, to appear to be useful, to do something that's going to help. But so part of me goes, yeah, I know it's not going to help, but it makes the people feel better while the pet gets better. <laughs> I think that's one reason. And it's, I mean, some of the, I don't know, there's a tie back into the affordability as well. Yeah, and that that really rapidly leads us into the financial viability of practice. The, I mean, one of our big issues in veterinary science is is income. Is well, we're underpaid. People are underpaid. They work too hard. They don't make. So we've got to make money. Yep. That becomes a, the big thing for me. Where I go, well, we've got to do stuff to make money, but we don't want to over service and overcharge. And I'm very sensitive about over servicing. Ask anybody who's ever employed me. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how do we gel those two? How do we go, well, we want to create a business that is profitable and where people can earn a, a decent living comparatively to others, but still be perfectly ethical? That's where you're going to go straight back into your ethics. Well, yeah, I've had my practice for a long time and I'm not a millionaire, but I can't say I make a lot of money. I pay everybody well, keep the staff for 30 years and all that sort of stuff. I think that's very important. But I think, you know, thinking about it over the years, I, I think what we've really got to do is to make our money out of our services and our surgery rather than out of flogging other stuff. And I think we should, I've never wanted to be a supermarket, so I don't, I sell virtually nothing. And I think that's okay. And, I, and I'm not sure about the research on this, but I, I suspect that if you don't have these high overheads of, well, some of it's useful maybe, but stuff that people can buy at supermarkets, then you're probably slightly more profitable if you can tap into really selling your services rather than selling extras, if you know what I mean. Things that can be bought at a supermarket. I'll write scripts. I'll write lots of scripts. If people can get non-steroidals at the chemist for their Rottweiler, cheaper than I can sell it, then I happily write a script. Um, no, I'm not much of a financial whiz, but I, I'm happy financially, if that makes sense. But I'm only one. And there's probably a different scenario when you've got corporations, whereas I only ever wanted to be the small community veterinary practice looking after the local community. And that's what I do and that's what I enjoy doing. So it's probably a very different scenario of my practice to bigger practices or country practices. And what about, because we, when we talk about flogging, it's not, uh, in fact, I, I see less and less of you. We went through a period where we had sold a lot of food and a lot of mm. merchandise stuff, but I see that less and less. I do feel we are moving towards selling services. 
then sometimes the, the question comes up about over-servicing. So we're selling mm -hmm. a service. So do you bump into the, the concept sometimes of, well, what is too much? Which too many tests, too many this, to that. Is that something that you think about or write about? Oh, I certainly write about it. Pre-anesthetic profiles is just a minor one. Well, maybe. And over-diagnosis. And I had Brennan McKenzie from America. He writes SkepVet. And he's a good friend. He spoke at the AVA conference on this whole issue of over-servicing, doing tests. I wrote an article that was published in the AVA, AVJ a few years ago entitled, Do You Want Fries With That? It was all about the fact that there's absolutely no evidence of pre-anesthetic profiles. And it's to do with payee and probability if you wanted to read the article. And so it's a bit statistical, but the, the, we don't do it. So a better use of a person's money, as it were, and better animal welfare to me, is if this old dog comes in, its teeth are falling out, it's in pain, obviously it needs a dental. There's no point doing a pre-anesthetic profile. That dog's going to need a dental regardless. And as long as it looks clinically, you know, if all else fails, look at the animal. There's all these tests that are carried out and not necessarily very useful. So we don't do it. And if this old dog comes in with terrible teeth and it's in pain and it looks in pretty good nick, then instead of doing a pre-anesthetic profile, which would happen elsewhere, we just put on IV fluids while we do the surgery. End of story. Easy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I get stuck on this one because I've heard some other very, very smart people agree mm. with you. Uh, yeah. But then yes. I've had some really yeah. people who I see as really ethical practitioners and business owners say, yes, but we do it. And once in a while, you get that surprise result that potentially saves an animal or stops the stuff up. So that's why that's why we do it. So, But the research shows that even if you, and I mean, all, all old dogs got elevated liver enzymes one way or other. And the research has shown that people do not change their anesthetic profile. They don't change what they do, regardless of the result. So we take the approach, well, you're just careful anyway. Once you start doing all these tests and you say, oh, what if, what if, then it becomes defensive medicine. And defensive medicine is bad medicine. And that's what leads to a lot of over-servicing. Oh, we must do this and we must do that, just in case. You know, we've got to get away from that mindset as practitioners, I think. But again, to counter argument, people will say, yes, but I also don't want to get sued. I've got this and this and this for all these reasons. We need to practice more in this way to cover ourselves, which is a bit sad, but not entirely untrue. I mean, how do you, how do you see that aspect of it of saying, well, like yeah. if, I, if I do my spay in a six-month-old and I didn't do pre-J bloods and there is some weird disorder, I'm, I'm trying to think of something with a blood clotting issue or doesn't have any platelets or something like mm. that. And it dies under anesthetic. Is there going to be a liability where they're going to, where the clients can say, well, most practices would have done pre-J bloods. You didn't. Now there's a problem. There's a liability there. Is that total rubbish? I think it's total rubbish. Look, if you've got, you know, your young Rottweiler, Doberman, you're going to spay, then you'll probably nowadays do a DNA test which is quite cheap, instead of clotting profile, you know that they genetically predispose. So look, it's good clinical judgment. And if you, and you can always take some blood, put it on the side, see if it clots after five to 10 minutes. And that's what we used to do back in the old days. And 
so then you go ahead with the spay. Yes, I, I think it's rubbish. And when new grads come to my practice or students upstairs say, what if you get sued? And you say, well, you know, the client might go to a solicitor to sue you. It's going to cost them $15,000 minimum to take you to court. And vet fees seem rather inexpensive. That's a jaundiced view. I mean, that's, that's a terrible... I mean, you still should practice properly just because solicitors are expensive and nobody's going to sue you. And all you can get, if you get, do, you can't get emotional damage. You'll only get the cost of the dog or cat. And the board acts very responsibly in these situations anyway. And then the big issue with costs really is the merchandise and the useless probiotics and those sorts of things. Yeah, pheromones. I write a regular column for the Friends of Science in Medicine, and they're a great group. And um, have you ever heard of them? No, I don't think I have. No, well, they're a human group, but I write a regular veterinary column for them talking about all these issues. Yeah, great. I'm going to have to look into that. We'll, we'll put it in the, in the show notes as well. They've got quite a few veterinary members, and, and the reason I like doing that is because their newsletter has the pharmacologists you know, the pharmacologists and the nurses and the midwives and all that stuff. So it's nice to think that people are that vets are joining into this discussion. I like that view of yours of saying, well, even when it does go wrong, when when there is a repercussion of some sort, mm. that view of and it's it's not really gonna be that bad. We make this massive emotional thing about, well, if I get a complaint Oh, the shame, and I'm going to lose my license. And you're not. You're just not. It's going to be annoying at worst and maybe a little bit of cost, and then life carries on. And Yeah, that's and right. It, life yeah. carries on. And, and I think boards handle these issues very well, to be honest with you. I sat on the board some years ago, and now I sit on the tribunal, and we look at appeal cases mostly, and very few major cases that go to the tribunal and it's mostly appeal cases quick interruption two things vetvelt live baby 22 to 25 november noosa two days of clinical content with prof jill madison and prof david church the oracles of smallies medicine but this is not your average conference we're going full vetvelt this means that our clinical content will be less lecture more interactive Lots of questions, interviews, case studies. Yeah, you're going to learn a few things, but what we really want to learn is how to think better. And then there's the non-clinical stuff. We're kayaking in a World Heritage site. We're doing yoga on the beach. We're surfing. We're hiking. We're climbing a mountain. We're doing cooking classes. Definitely a fair bit of eating. My favorite ice cream shop is across the road from our venue for day two, which also happens to be across the road from the beach. And on the last day, we are doing a four-hour session with Philip McKernan from episode 70. It is going to be epic. I'll put a link for the full event in the episode description. But don't book there. Email us at vetvaultpodcast at gmail.com and tell us that you heard about it here and we'll send you a Vetvault listener discount code. Thing number two. Our Vetvault clinical subscribers already know about this conference and a bunch of them have already booked. And what's more... They are almost certainly a few steps ahead of most vets on the knowledge front when it comes to our topics for the conference, which is endocrinology conundrums and clinical reasoning. This is because they've already listened to hours of amazing content with our two conference guests on our medicine podcast, plus around 80 plus hours and counting of other medicine, surgery and emergency and critical care content. They're a smart bunch, our subscribers, and they're getting even smarter. 
which is why we call them our Red Vault Nerds. You should be a nerd. Check it out for free for two weeks at vvn.supercast.com. I think in general, vets do do the right thing. I think maybe there's other issues like corporatization, which have, will may alter practice the way practice goes. And, and I think, well, that's one issue because normally with your small practice like mine, you've got your relationship with your client and your staff and yourself and the animal's owner. So it's a very small group to consider. But if you're with a corporate, then you have to consider the ethics of the corporate structure. So you're responsible not just to yourself and your clients. You've got this extra dimension, which can make life a little bit more complex because your views might differ from the views of the corporate owner, for instance, and that can create conflict. So it's not quite uh, such a simple... I mean, it's always difficult because you've got this triangular situation where between the animal and the owner and the vet, you've always got that. And if you add extra dimensions like corporate owner into that, then it makes life and ethical decision-making a lot more complex. It certainly does, but it's, it's hard enough with the triangle that you mentioned. Should we talk about that? I don't know that we often think about the burden that it puts on us as well, the having to keep everybody's interests in, in mind in your decision-making. It's very easy to sit in a lecture and go, yep, these are the things you should do. Like even with our clinical podcast, I do those and you go, ah, I've got it. This is easy. The next time I see one and then you get onto the consult room and there's that third factor in there, the client factor and the financial factor again, that clouds, cloud is the water. What do we do about that? Well, we put the animal first and that's the way we should operate because if you look at all the codes and all the legal regulations, they all say the animal welfare is your first priority. Your first priority is the welfare of the animal, not the welfare of the owner. And look, I I think we talk about ethical dilemmas, but they're not really, they're just sort of ethical challenges. And I, I think most practitioners handle these without too much anguish, to be honest with you. And I remember years ago, I met up with Professor Don Broom in Cambridge, and he said to me, he said, you vets are very lucky. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, well, you get to deal with ethical challenges every day of the week. And I said, well, yes, I hadn't sort of thought about it that way. But really, that's what makes life interesting. It's problem solving as a practitioner, dealing with your client, dealing with the animals. But the animal always has to come first. And that's what the codes of conduct say. That's what the legislation says. And then I have students saying, I really think this dog ought to go to doggy heaven, but the owner won't agree. And the legislation clearly states that a dog is like your washing machine or your car, it's a chattel. And once the animal's suffering, then the owner's rights are overridden by legislation. So in in actual fact, you can seize that animal to destroy it. And of course, you wouldn't do that. You try to avoid doing that. I've only ever done that a couple of times But there's this misconception that the owner has the final say when they don't under legislation in Australia, if you really wanted to push push those buttons. So you can say to the owner, well, look, your animal is suffering. And according to the law, I can take your animal and destroy it. I mean, you never let it get to that. But that should be in your mind 
that in actually, I had no idea. Yes, that should be in your mind. Yeah, oh no, no. Under all the legislations, you can seize a suffering animal to destroy it. As as a veterinarian, as a yep, professional, as a vet, it's under the Pocter Act. I did not know that. In my head, the owner did. I thought that Chad Chattel Chattel Chattel. I don't know which. I thought that rule meant that owner owns that thing, even though yeah, it is well, a, a sentient being, and yeah. and because they own that thing, it's their decision what they. No, no, do with no. It. no. It's, it's, no, it's not their decision at all. Not if the animal's terminally suffering. It's their decisions overruled by legislation. And it's for any situation where an animal's terminally suffering, the police can go and shoot it or whatever. But, yes, yeah, so vets can. But, I mean, you don't. But I, I think we need to keep in mind that most people know when it's time to go. And uh, there's a lot of work around the fact that some people leave it too long and there's that anguish and then they say afterwards i've left it too long so it's getting that balance right but most people are satisfied with that decision and so we sort of say it's a big issue whatever it's i don't think it's such a big issue actually euthanizing the animal i think the big issue is coming to that decision and making sure you're comfortable with that decision and the client's comfortable with that decision. So it goes back to end-of-life decision-making. And this sometimes brings in this concept of heroic treatments and over-servicing that can really go a little bit haywire at that stage where the owner just can't let the animal go and then you're stuck with this situation. It's just making that decision. And you know, you'll look at an animal and it's end stage. And the owner says, oh, I think it's looking very good today. <laughs> <laughs> so this subjective assessment of animal welfare, and then you get the, the caregiver placebo effect. Some of these decisions you mentioned are tricky, though, and especially considering the owner's wants and needs and you yeah. want to give them what they want. So there's a few things you mentioned. The one thing, and I'd love some help. So help us with some of these decisions. The, like how do you personally and what do you recommend as a guideline for making a decision to say, no, this is probably too far? And specifically keeping that heroic treatments, but I'm an emergency veterinarian. Heroic mm. treatments are what we thrive on. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> That's what we love. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's great to do it when there's a good outcome. Then it becomes really <laughs> satisfying. But you do have those questionable ones where you go, well, we can do all these heroic things, but I know the end result whether it's next month or six months from now, it's mm. going to be this and this. And then the when I have this discussion with a lot of people, again, who I really respect, they will say, well, that's up to the owner. If they want another two weeks with the animal and you can give it to them, then you should give it to them. Mm. How, how, do you, how do we think about this? I think we need to think about it and the fact that we're abrogating our professional responsibility onto the owner. They're not the trained professional we are. And I think we need to do a lot more of, in my opinion, to generate that trust, not to say, well, you can do this or you can do that. So like pre-anesthetic profiles. I mean, really, what would the owner, the average owner, know about the science behind pre-anesthetic profile? What the hell are we doing giving them a choice? And I think it comes down to that. And look, and this is what the problem with human health as well, where this end-of-life over-testing and over-servicing is big time likely to lead the collapse of the healthcare system. And, you know, doctors have done this as well. They've abrogated their professional responsibility. The trouble is you've got to try and get that balance between being paternalistic and thinking you're God and my word is 
is the end word, and taking into account the moral views of the owner. So you need to get that balance right. Keep in mind that your dog can't see tomorrow. Animals don't see into the future. They live in the present. They're suffering in the present. And say, in my opinion, this is what I would do. And it comes back to generating trust and for the owner to trust that your opinion as a professional is what they should go with. So rather than saying, well, look, your dog's dying, but we could do an ultrasound, a CT scan, more blood work, et cetera, et cetera. Just saying, look, in, in my opinion, uh, look, it comes back to good clinical judgment, doesn't it? And you'd know that too. A lot of it is really not being paternalistic, working with the owners. And I find checklists are really useful. I say to them, can your animal do this? And this is what I, I have in one of my papers about a, a checklist. Rather than going through ethical matrices and who's going to sit down and do that really, I think it all becomes too much of an anguish. I find that 90% of my clients, they come in and they say it's time to go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read one of the things you, you wrote about this stuff. Um, there's a word in there that I, I just like the word. I'm going to read it here. Escalope, Escalopian authority. Escalopian authority. Oh, yes. yeah. What, what, what does that mean? Oh, it's just sort of it means people looking up to you, really, because you have special powers. Look, it, you know, we talk about that, but I, I'm not sure. You touched on it, and it is something that, bothers me sometimes that I see in practice that I have seen all throughout my career is that thing of we have special powers and delegating the decision making to the owners sometimes is, is not really appropriate. No, it's definitely not. So I'll, you'll discuss a case and then I'll think, well, why did you do X, Y, and Z? Was it entirely necessary? And then the response will be, well, there's possibly an indication to do it. And I offered it to the owner and they said yes. And then my internal response is, yeah, but they don't know. I find it hard to make this decision sometimes. So you can't really, it's like when I go to the mechanic with my car, I don't understand the car. So I trust <laughs> my mechanic to say, these are the things we need to do and not offer a thousand other things that may, maybe you know, eventually that could happen. Or, but I, I don't know. Don't, don't leave the decision to me. Tell me what I should do. This is why I'm paying you. I need your wisdom. I need your experience. Mm. Yep. Well, people, clients say, what would you do? They do. They say, what would you do if that was your animal? Which can be a tough one because, again, I might feel different about my animal. Look, I think we do need to keep in mind that we're the experts. We're the trained professional, not the owner. And to act as the trained professional, not to say to the owner, well, you could do this, could do that. That doesn't generate trust, does it, in your decisions? Once you start saying, well, there's 101 different tests rather than making a clinical judgment. I think sometimes it also comes a bit from a lack of trust in ourselves. Mm. Almost mm. sure it's this and this and this and that it's a hopeless prognosis. But what if I'm wrong? You know, what if that thing is not a cancer? What if it's actually a yeah. very weird mm. fungal abscess that I could potentially treat? So I should probably... Yeah, and I think that's the other thing that's very important in terms of unrealistic expectations as well as that it's, as I've written about this, it's time to ditch the gold standards. No such thing as a gold standard. Medicine's an inexact science. We need to use best evidence. And this whole concept of the gold standard should be just tossed out. And mistakes happen, stuff-ups happen, and it's just unrealistic to assume 
that you're going to happily trot along in practice and never make a mistake. And also it's unrealistic to assume that you need to or you want to or you're going to do 6,000 tests every animal that comes in the door. There needs to be a lot more confidence in clinical decision-making, first up. And there's got to be no more gold standard. This doesn't exist. It's an inexact science. It's not physics. It's not chemistry. It's medicine. And medicine, stuff-ups happen. And I think that's a really important point that's not being pushed enough by the educators and by us people in the profession, apart from me who does this sort of stuff all the time, write about it. But I think that's a really very important area to talk about to students. Now, things go wrong. And often things go wrong is not to do with a lack of knowledge. It's to do with biases, human behaviour. And I think uh, there's just a lack of acknowledgement of how much human behaviour comes into decision-making rather than just knowledge. You know, we can have all the knowledge in the world and stuff up. Yeah, exactly. If we, Because if we want to adopt that mindset of let's ditch the idea of the gold standard and just do what is scientifically proven, then we have to be able to sit comfortably with the idea that occasionally you will be wrong. If you don't do every possible test for every possible case and you're using your clinical judgment Sometimes you will be wrong and then saying, and then when things go wrong, it's not a, when I use the word, it's not a fuck up, excuse yeah. me for the swearing, but, yeah. and it's not a, fa it's not a failure of you yeah. as a clinician or as a human being. Mm. It is just, it's just life. Yeah. Part of the, part of the game. Yeah, sometimes. it is. And, and um, now I come across students, they're really scared. They want to do all these tests, they're defensive medicine. They're scared. They're scared. They're going to stuff up. They're scared they're going to be sued. They're scared they're going to be reported to the board. And then as a general practitioner and in a practice where we do virtually everything, they want to refer everything off. They're really scared then to undertake some surgery, which they could probably be quite capable of doing. And then my big concern with this is then it turns general practice into a very, very boring pursuit. I look at human GPs. I often go, when I go there, I go, wow, how boring is your life? Do you hardly touch me? You take a bit of a history and then you say, okay, I want to send you here, there, and there. Yeah, that's right. Or if you go, yeah. I go, oh, well, no, I no. And that's, <laughs> that's what really worries me. And the whole concept that you might have huge practices where they do everything, which are very expensive, and branch practices where people just write scripts or whatever, or express animal glands. And it's really very um, depressing in terms of our profession. And I think we've got to get away from that whole idea. We've got to encourage your GP vets. You've got to tell them how wonderful they are. We've got to say you're part of the community. You need to generate trust. And you've got to trust yourselves a bit more. And we've got to have new graduates coming out confident that they'll have a go at things rather than referring everything off that they see just so that um, practice does is interesting. Practice is lovely. It's really, really interesting. And I think um, that feedback that comes from the clients that appreciate you is just really nice. It's rewarding. I find practice very rewarding. I really like it. But then we do lots in my practice. <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate, though, because I, I agree with you again. Yeah. 
I'd hate to just sit there and write scripts and refer things off. But then that ability to refer, I feel like for a long time, we can get stuck in that idea of I have to, there's that expectation that I should be able to do everything. And that's quite exhausting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a generalization, sorry. It is nice. It's very nice to let it go sometimes and go, look, yeah, yeah this is hard. I, I don't I don't need to be able to handle every case. I can let this go. Just say, oh, if you go, go somewhere else where they are going to handle this. That To me, that was a big changing point to go, all right, look, I'm tired. I want to go home. I want to see my kids. I, I could stay back and read more and do this. Or I can just say, okay, just go somewhere else. I'm, I'm sick of you. Oh, no, that was a generalization on my part. I do refer things. I refer eyes. Yeah, so it is a generalization, and it's great to have your specialists. It's great. But at the same time, while it's great to have your specialists, and, and I do refer, I think that um, for lots of the bread and butter stuff, that general practitioners should be doing what they can just because it makes life much more rewarding. And it's better for the client as well. So I think there's that juggling act as well. And no, it's great to have specialists. But we've, I think we need to not downplay the role of the vet. We don't want the GP vet. We don't want them to turn them into yeah, script sure. writers. I normally start this with getting to know the guest first. And we just dove straight into the deep stuff. Let's backtrack a little bit. I'd love to find out more about your career and, and how you managed your career. Yeah. Talk us through your career then, Tanya. Did you, yeah, we'll, we'll go, let's go from graduating through uni to how you got involved in all the things you, got, you are involved in. Well, I started off in final year vet science. I reared an orphan Joey. And then I went looking for information on what to feed them. And there wasn't anything much out there. And I also discovered a lot of these Joeys fell on cow's milk, but they didn't die of, of, of diarrhea. They developed cataracts. And that really got me interested in that whole area. And I always liked biochemistry. And so when I graduated, I started doing a master's and that was on normal blood values of kangaroos and captivity in um, research establishments. So I used to go out and collect loads of uh, blood. But look, I didn't sort of pursue that, although I've got loads of data on kangaroos and captivity. That really got me interested in that. And I wondered whether they were galactosemic, whether they could metabolize galactose, kangaroos. So I approached the Children's Medical Research Foundation, who are doing research on this, and they gave me a research grant. Now, all this time, I was also working in practice. So I was uh, doing locums and working in practice, and I had a, a really lovely boss, first boss, which I think was very important. And he set up a new practice, and I ran it. So I did that. And then I had this research grant from the Children's Hospital, and then I spent a year on this, collecting blood from joeys and looking at whether, in fact, they could metabolize galactose. And we found that they couldn't. I used to kick joeys at the children's hospital. So that used to delight all the children. They used to come and visit my joeys at the animal house. And that's how I really sort of got involved with research. And we published our first paper in Nature. And then we followed it up with some other papers. And that's how I really got interested in the kangaroos. So I... Was quite pleased with that. I had a full page article in the Sydney Morning Herald, etc. etc. Felt like yeah. a bit of a celebrity. And then the fellow I worked for sold his practices, and uh, I didn't want to become an academic. And I should say that I married my husband as an architect and was an academic, 
when I was 19. So we were married as students. Anyway, so he had to put up with all these kangaroos living in the bedroom and things like that. He's, a, he's very good at that, very good at getting up in the middle of the night and feeding the wombats. Anyway, so then I, I had my first child and he was six months old and there was an empty shop and I knew a lot of the locals and they said, oh, we could do with a vet in the area. So I opened my practice and we just bought this house which hadn't been touched since 1912. So we lived in squalor and we still do a bit because I'm married to an architect. <laughs> So that's a bit like vets, dogs with fleas. And so we still don't live in a nice house. Anyway, that's another story. And so I opened the practice. I sort of think I must have had postnatal depression. Why the hell would you do that? Empty shop, opened a practice, six-month-old baby that didn't sleep, had to drive around all night to try and get him to sleep. I don't know why I did that. But, look, I, um, I did actually... Never really wanted, I interested in cattle practice, but Harry got a job at New South Wales Union. You know, it's really hard to be a cattle practitioner in Sydney mm. or a wildlife researcher, but there was no real jobs going in the veterinary wildlife world at the time. Didn't really want to be a zoo vet. I was more interested in Australian wildlife. And so I just sort of fell into practice, but I've kept up doing the kangaroo work, obviously, and, and I did some more research on the kangaroos and then so I just sort of you know ran the practice four children it allowed me the opportunity to which I couldn't have done if I worked for somebody else and it allowed me to juggle work and having children and I was really lucky I had lots of really great long-term vets work for me and uh, I had Jill Madison with me for very many years and what, Jill Madison worked for yes, you? Yes, as a new grad for many years. <laughs> wow. I think okay. she was with me for about 20 years on and off. Anyway, yes, yeah, so she was a wonderful positive influence on clinical decision-making. So, look, I've maintained the practice. as a small community practice. It's just a walk-in. We don't have appointments. And we have very set hours so that you can pick your kids up from school in the afternoon. So it's very much geared around family and I quite like practice, but then I went on to do other things. I've always um, been on the Animal Ethics Committee for the Children's Hospital, Children's Medical Research Institute. I am their honorary vet. I've always interested in research and animal ethics committee, so I've done that continually for a long, long time. I sat on the Vet Surgeons Board, was interested in doing that. You know, memberships in animal welfare when kids are all grown up. And then I did this uh, master's at Edinburgh as well. And uh, I've always liked writing. So then I started writing articles for the AVJ and uh, got involved in the welfare and ethics group a long time ago. So it's really took it from there and got involved in lots of other areas as the children got older, really. But, but yeah. I've got so many questions. <laughs> so the first, let's go right back to the start. So when you were working in practice and then did the kangaroo research, how did you make that work? Were you working full-time and then bled kangaroos in the middle of the night or, or how did you juggle life then? Well, it was a bit of a juggle. I can't really remember now. I just sort of juggled it with the work on the normal blood values. But when I went to the kids' hospital, uh, the research grant, I just spent the whole year there full time. And then I went back into practice. I used to do locums and then 
so I decided to open my own practice. If there hadn't been an empty shop, I wouldn't have done it. It's really interesting what you said there about how you did the research, but worked a little bit. And it feels like you've sort of weaved your way in and out between the different things, which is a really cool approach because I feel a lot of us feel like it's got to be one or the other. I'm either going to go into being a clinical practitioner or I've got to become a researcher. No, no. Do you think, is it still possible? Like, has anything changed over time? Can people still do that? Can I still go, well, I want to do some research, but I want to do some practice. Well, I, I did some more research on the kangaroos a couple of years ago. I did the masters and uh, yeah, go out and collect a bit of blood and do that. I think too, what we should remember is that we should all do research and practice. That's how we should advance. And that's what can make it practice a lot more interesting if we can do clinical audits or find a research project and you can get approval through an animal ethics committee so you can publish that think about what you can do in practice and that's a whole one of the wonderful things about evidence-based medicine and the use of evidence-based medicine is you can set up uh, clinical audits or research projects within practice which I don't do well I did you know I did a small one a few years ago we um, randomly assigned cats with cat bite abscesses that were draining. Did we give them antibiotics or not give them antibiotics? And we discovered that they got better regardless. Oh, really? So this is because we've had this on the clinical, but uh, we've talked a lot about this. And I still personally really struggle with not giving a cat bite abscess antibiotics. I think it's that fear-based thing again of, well, if I don't, and they come back with repercussions, medicine. it's defensive medicine. So yep. you said your research categorically showed no difference. No, and somebody else did some research a couple of years ago and it showed no difference. I think that was on Best Bets for Vets, which is the University of Nottingham site, evidence-based site, where they do a lot of that sort of work. No, it makes no difference. And we should be reducing antibiotic use full stop. So the research thing, that's another mind shift for me because again you're either a practitioner or you're a researcher mm. the concept of saying because i've had things all through my career where i went oh that's interesting i wonder you know you do a bit of reading and you can't find exactly the information that you're looking for and you go oh somebody should do this research but i've ne never actually thought well i'm going to do it because a i go time surely that sounds like a massive time commitment and i just don't have time in everyday practice mm. And I'm just like, well, I'm not a researcher. I'm too stupid to do it. Like you have to have some special skills to yeah. do that sort of stuff. Is that a completely mis... Is it, am Misgu am I totally misguided. Totally misguided. And you can do, even if you don't call it exact research, you can do a clinical audit, which is really what we did with the antibiotic use with the abscesses. You can do that. And you can make a note of what you do in practice and what was the outcome. And that's, you might do something a bit differently to somebody else in the practice. You can keep tabs of that. And, you know, that's what a little bit of what Vet Compass is about. So if you look at what's happening in the evidence-based world, veterinary medicine world, some wonderful things happening. The systematic reviews now, there's so much information out there. This whole idea that you're going to read your way through 22,000 new papers it's just absurd that come out every year in veterinary medicine. So you really, we really got to rethink the whole concept of practice. What's Vet Compass? Oh, it's that, um, oh, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it collects, it collects data 
on, okay. on from practices about what they do. And it leads you to focus on what practitioners think is important. So the trouble is very much in a university setting, they'll look at something that's unusual mm-hmm. because that's unusual, but they don't do stuff that practitioners do every day. Like what's the best way to deal with an oral hematoma? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> no, nobody's <Yeah>. ever done. <laughs> so uh, I think this it should be really better promoted, the whole concept of evidence-based medicine, clinical audits, and that can make practice a lot more interesting, does make practice more interesting. So we do a bit of that in practice, but then you can also do research in practice. It might be a new surgical technique. You can get approval from an animal ethics committee. You can put in an application and get approval from a committee. The one I sit on with NAVAG in New South Wales, a number of practices put in these applications. And then if you've got ethics approval, then you can use that work to publish a paper. We need to do more of that. And we also need to push the idea that the systematic reviews, the evidence-based sites have got loads of information, which you're not going to get with trying to trawl through 22,000 new papers each year that are now produced compared to the 1970s. I mean, it's a very different world to the world of James Herriot. You know, there's so much information out there. You can't possibly learn all that. There has to be a move towards teaching students facts to teaching them how to access best evidence. So where would you begin if I am a practitioner and I have an idea and I think I'm curious about this thing and I wanted to where do you go to? What's your first step? Well, I think your first step is to think about how you would carry out an experiment in practice. It might be a new surgical technique. Think about putting in a research application to an animal ethics committee in your state. So where do you find, like, who's the animal ethics committee? So where... It's under the various departments in different states, usually. So you Google... With a vet board or? Uh, no, who, who... it's not the vet board. It's um, with the uh, New South Wales, it's the Department of Primary Industry Animal Ethics Committee. And it's the Secretary's Animal Ethics Committee. So, for instance, you want to try out a new drug, new chemotherapy drug, for instance. You can put an application in with a proposal. How many animals you're going to use? Justification, big one. You've got to justify why you want to do that research. And you've um, got the owner's permission to do all this. So it's a bit of a process, but you can do it. And if you don't want to go through that process so that you can publish the paper, you can do, like I said, a clinical audit. You can look at what you did and how well it worked. So okay, look so that's a retrospective, like, it's keeping yeah. track of what you're doing anyway. Yeah, so that's more of a reflection on what you're doing. And you might think, well, I've been doing that, like giving antibiotics to cats with abscesses. Maybe I shouldn't bother, you know, but maybe uh, I should give that a miss and reduce antibiotic use. Yeah, so common things. It's like kennel cough is a really good example. Kennel cough. Do, do I give these dogs with kennel cough anything at all? Well, no. Or probiotics that haven't been shown to work anyway. Maybe you have well, dogs with diarrhea, vomiting, you know, dime a dozen. Split them into two give some of these dogs probiotics if you use them we don't and some of them you don't and then look back after a couple of months and say well that's interesting the dogs that i didn't give probiotics to the diarrhea cleared up 
just with dietary changes. So the other thing that in your story there that I'm really interested in, you said that you couldn't have done the things you've done if you didn't have your own practice. Mm. Now, a lot of people will feel the opposite or go, well, I have these other things I want to do, so I should never own a practice because that's going to suck up all of my time. So you clearly had a different mindset or a different way that you ran your practice because I feel like a lot of practice owners will say, oh, no, I on no time for anything else. It's just the clinic and the staff management and all of this. How did you do it differently that, that, that gave you that sense of flexibility? Well, I set it up right from the beginning to have these no appointment system and consultation hours of 9 to 12, 5 to 8. So the middle of the day, we do the surgery and I can vary that. So the kids had a concert or something I had to go to, then I wouldn't book surgery in that day. And then also because I'm the owner, I could juggle a little bit in terms of time off, which I felt that I couldn't have done if I worked for somebody else. So I think in that regard, that sense of autonomy in decision-making and also employing people with a similar mindset to mine. And I always said, look after your staff, long-term staff, don't have business meetings, don't have practice meetings, have pizza nights instead. Look, I don't know. I never pictured myself as a, as a business owner. I sort of fell into it in a funny sort of way when I probably postnatal depression, like I said, non-sleeping infant. So most of the time it's worked out. I mean, I've had a few hiccups where I haven't been able to find staff and that's been a problem. I've had some wonderful long-term people and most of the time it's, it's worked. So when we did the um, panel discussion at the ABA conference that you were a part of, you said something there that I think I understood it correctly. But you, because when we talked about kids and career and you know trying to do everything while you have kids and then also trying to be super businesswoman and or man, um, this I, I, we can't say just women. There are men who also just want to raise the kids or spend more time with the kids. And you said that while well, you took time and you raised your kids, and then once they were old enough, then you refocused on career again did i understand that correctly is that how you yeah, approached it well I've, look i never thought about careers and as such i was always interested in animal welfare and i suppose once they were all grown up that was then when i did my membership exams and the degree in edinburgh it wasn't so much a refocus it's just that i thought i want to do something else now the kids are grown up and i was passionate about learning more i think and that appealed to me rather than sort of sitting around watching television or whatever I could do in my spare time. No, that appealed to me. I don't know what drove me. I don't feel like I'm a very driven person, but that certainly appealed to me. How old were you when you did your memberships, if you don't mind me asking? I can't remember now. It was quite a long time ago. I can't remember, 50s or something like that. Yeah, see, that's interesting because I think a, a lot of people feel like, well, I'm 20s to 40s is going to be when I've got to do my career stuff to further myself and create the, you know, the professional that I can. So the concept of saying, well, not necessarily, you can in that child rearing age, if you decide to have a family, there's work, but you don't have to be. And then afterwards, you're not dead yet. You can, <laughs> you can still, you can still do the things you want to do. Well, I mean, I probably didn't think about doing all this. Well, look, I always did at animal ethics committees. I always wrote a bit, and uh, so I haven't just done practice anyway. But I really 
it wasn't even so much as time management. It was more that, and it wasn't so much as, oh, whoopee, I've got all this spare time, let's do something else. It was just, I thought, I probably could have organised it earlier, but I just didn't really think about doing it. So it wasn't really, now I've got time, what else can I do? It was more, this looks interesting, I'll do it. I mean, I probably could have juggled that earlier if I wanted to, but I suppose I probably didn't think about it. But then I was probably busy. I don't know, busy. Work, four children, all that. Sounds like you've just got an insatiable, insatiable curiosity. Always have Maybe. had. Maybe. I think you're just a Maybe. very curious, curious person. I it? think I'm, I, I have to laugh. My eldest daughter's a doctor and she's decided I'm AH. What is ADHD? And I'm going, I don't think I am. You're putting a label on everything. It's like dogs. Dogs are dogs. They don't all have problems. They need Prozac. I've got to ask you about the book. Your book's just oh, coming book. out, come, come out, has come out. Oh, it came out at the end of last year. One welfare in practice, the role of the veterinarian. Mm. Right. Yeah, so I've always been interested in environmental issues. It's always been a bit of a passion. Uh, a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at the One Welfare Conference on land clearing, and somebody obviously heard about it, and out of the blue, which I thought was a spam call, I had an email from the chief acquisitions editor for CRC Press who put this, saying, would I be interested in putting out a book on one welfare in practice? And when I worked out that they were actually real, <laughs> I said, sounds interesting. Now, I've been organizing conference programs, and I knew a lot of people in this area. So you have to look at the cover, though, because my husband designed that, so it's very fancy. It's sometimes handy to have an architect in the family, even if you live in squalor. So I got together all the big issues, and really it's all about professional ethics. Professional ethics is really one welfare. Um, the whole idea that, that vets are concerned for the environment and mankind is really what professional ethics is. It was never about just being concerned about your, your client and your dogs and cats. It was always about this concern for the wider world. Mm. So it's a book for veterinarians. It's not for it's the general a, no, public. No, no. It's a book for veterinarians and for others who might be involved. I want to say it's for vets who are interested in this sort of stuff, but it kind of sounds like all of us should read it. It should be required reading. <laughs> all of us should. Because that's what One Welfare is. That's what being a vet is. That's what professional ethics is. So we are concerned about climate change. We are part of the solution. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, let's start wrapping up. Do you, you obviously read a lot, but do you listen to podcasts at all? I do occasionally. The mostly things I listen to are the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra online. Ah, oh, nice. <laughs> While I'm working. <laughs> is that a is that a podcast or is it just on the radio? Uh, look on the radio, but they do have podcasts as well because um, they did a daily dose in the first year of the lockdowns. So the TSO nice. did a daily dose. If you want to look up the TSO daily dose, wonderful music. Why the Tasmanian specifically? Because that you did you say that's where your son is? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, so you're biased. But, the, <laughs> but they're but they're the only ones that did a podcast. All the other orchestras went a bit quiet, and the TSO jumped up and started doing these daily podcasts. 
All right. And then well, let's say then books that you've read recently that have made a big impact that you feel we should all read. Have you got anything in mind? No, I tend to read a lot of articles okay. rather than in journals. I, I'm a big journal reader. I like reading books, but I haven't read novels for ages, which I feel a bit sort of remiss about. But if I really want to relax, I love poetry. I'll sit down and read a book of poetry okay. rather than reading a novel. I mean, I do like novels, but I'll do that. And if I veg out, I watch television. And then we'll wrap it up with our last question, Tanya. You're at a conference of sorts and you have all of the veterinary new grads of the world listening to you and you've got a few minutes to give them one message. What would your message be? It, this is a vocation, not a job. You're in it because you want to be a vet. It's good fun. Enjoy the ethical challenges. Just see that's part of the job. Don't say, oh, is, woe is me. Be a social worker. A lot of the jobs are social work, unfortunately, or fortunately. Enjoy helping people. Be collegiate. Just enjoy the role. Use evidence-based medicine, which makes the job much more rewarding. And acknowledge that you're not perfect and that things go wrong. And don't blame yourself. Don't blame yourself when things go wrong. And this is really your fault. But <laughs> that's what I would say. I think, unfortunately, we live in this post-truth society where opinions matter as much as science. And, you know, we've got to get away from that. <clears throat> we nearly really got to promote science, evidence-based medicine, um, enjoyment of practice, look at ethical situations as challenges to be solved rather than dilemmas and woe is me. I really like that. There's the two things that you said there that stood out to me because it comes down to, and you've said the word expectations several times, expectations and, and mindset to some degree. And is that the, the one thing is that enjoy the challenges. So we have that expectation that it should be easy or, you know, just if, if it's, if a, if a day is a hard day, then it's a bad day. And I like that you flip that around and say, no, this is what it's about. This is what life is about is it's, if, it, if you don't have those challenges, then it's boring. So focus on enjoying. And then the other one, that expectation of perfection, that expectation that I will, can know everything and do everything and do everything perfectly and never make mistakes. That mindset of going, that's ridiculous. If that's your expectation, you're bound to be disappointed. So I really like those. Those are really good. Tanya, thank you so much for your time. You're a legend. You're an inspiration. I think our listeners will take a lot from this. Thank you. I've babbled on a bit, I think, but anyway. No, that's what it's for. This is we have conversations. It's not babbling. It's, it's talking. Our goal here at The Vet Doll is to have conversations, like the one you've just listened to, that will give you inspiration and fresh ideas on how to create a thriving and happy career and life as a vet. You'll know by now that our focus is on the life skills that we need to navigate this challenging and rewarding profession of ours. But there's something that I've realized over the last few years of exploring ways to increase enjoyment of the job. That is, that the vets who are confident in their skills and knowledge are, as a whole, more satisfied with their careers. Which makes sense. When you feel rusty or uncertain in your knowledge, it's very easy for those imposter feelings to sneak in. I don't know enough. Am I good enough? Conversely, we know that feelings of growth and mastery are some of the greatest predictors of a happy career, which is why we created the Vet Vault Clinical Podcast, three highly practical episodes every week. 
conversations, not lectures, with world-class specialists. Tips, updates, real insights, not textbook theory. Short enough to listen to on your drive to work, but with enough content to ensure that you'll be a little bit better at your job than you were before you listened. Join us on our journey to better by trying out our free two-week trial at vvn.supercast.tech.